Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. So we consider just a few short verses uh, this particular evening. Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all of her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, and those who hold her fast are called blessed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we consider uh, the nature of wisdom once more, we ask that you would give us wisdom even as your word tells us to turn to the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning, that you will graciously give that wisdom from on high. We ask that we might understand what your word says so that we may lay hold of the very wisdom that you have called us to grasp. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, As we've been making our way uh, very slowly through the book of Proverbs in the evening, Uh, Evenings these past few months, I think we're hopefully starting to see a repeated theme. It's a theme that reiterates itself so often that I think it is perhaps possible just to glaze over the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Uh, And there's some merit in reading Proverbs 1 to 9 as a single entity and unit. It is the first book of seven collected writings in the book of Proverbs, but the major theme, of course, is this. Get hold of wisdom. Love wisdom. Pursue it. As we've seen, the author, Solomon, under inspiration of the Spirit, continues to press home this point as he speaks to his son, the messianic heir, the heir to the throne, saying this, above all things, uh, this is the very thing that your heart is to pursue. Again, I think so many of us go, yeah, 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 I get it, what's next? But might I suggest uh, that if Solomon, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, spends nine chapters driving home this single point, get wisdom, then perhaps he's calling for us to slow down and get wisdom. You might go, well, I get it in principle, but the question is, do we get it in practice. And as we slow down and meditate on the Word of God, particularly this passage this evening, we'll see how Solomon's exhortation to lay hold of wisdom begins to reorder our lives in ways that perhaps we have not even contemplated. Here, Solomon calls us to evaluate our priorities, to reorder our desires according the beginning of wisdom, the very thing that we've heard over and over again, that it is the fear of the Lord that should so reorder all that we say, all that we love, all that we think, and all that we do. So tonight I'd like us to consider two benefits to wisdom, and we'll consider this in two parts. 
first in verses 13 to 15, and secondly in verses 16 to 18. Now, if we could sum up verses 13 to 15, we see the major point that Solomon drives home is this, wisdom is better than riches. But before we dive in there, I think we would do well to step back and notice this. Why is it that we are simply looking at verses 13 to 18? Well, if you look at the beginning of verse 13, what is the first word? It is blessed. If you look down at the bottom of verse 18, what is the final word? It is blessed. Here we have this single unit that forms a bookend of blessings. And this passage is meant to be read and to be contemplated as a distinct unit. It's as if blessing marks the boundaries of this passage. Happiness, being bound up with wisdom. We see those benefits that are peppered throughout when we begin to look at these verses. It's like finding rubies in a great mountain. Solomon speaks of the happiness or the blessedness of the one who pursues and lays hold of wisdom. Her gains and profits are likened to hidden treasures of silver, gold, and jewels. Uh, the word there for jewels is uh, uh, to be understood as, uh, so it's a word to describe these, these kind of rubied corals that were found in the depths of the sea. These are, these are priceless treasures. The promise of long life, riches, honor, pleasant paths of peace. Who would not want these things? Charles Bridges, in his commentary on Proverbs 3, puts it like this. Who does not admire this glowing picture of happiness? In fact, I think uh, many of us would... Um, the, the immediate temptation would be to excuse away this passage because it's offering so much that's good. I think perhaps we might want to hedge our bets. You go, well, here's the promise of long life, peace, and happiness, but, well, let's, let's tap the brakes here. No, this is what is promised to those who lay hold of wisdom. And yet, as we contemplate the passage even further, we see that uh, these verses sparkle with references to paradise itself. Just like Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, here is a land that is studded with precious jewels. Just like Eden, it is centered around a tree of life. Notice there at the end of verse 18. And just as in Eden, we have the picture of a man who is perfectly blessed. Solomon's opening lines here echo the lines, the opening lines of the Psalter. Blessed is the man, the man who walks the path of wisdom, the man who repudiates the folly of the wicked. Now, there is a Hebrew word used uh, to describe, uh, to speak of man. That word is ha'ish. You don't have to know that. You're not going to get tested on it. You see that, for instance, in Psalm chapter 1, Ashrei ha'ish, blessed is the man. However, that is not the word that Solomon uses here. The word here he uses is Adam. Ashrei Adam, blessed is the Adam. Of course, Adam we know means man, but it's not the more common use of the word man. But I think we have to ask ourselves, why is Solomon using this particular word? This is an instance of poetry. 
Why does Solomon, under the Spirit's inspiration, speak of the blessings of Adam and the tree of life? And that's how this passage begins and ends. It begins with Adam. It ends with the tree of life. Paradise is on Solomon's mind. Eden sits in the forefront of Solomon's thoughts. Think of the opening passages to Genesis chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, then the Lord God formed Ha'adam, the man of dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And Ha'adam, and Adam became a living creature. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man, and the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This begins the record of human history. As we know the story in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, Adam is put to the test. How is it that Adam will gain wisdom? How is it that Adam will grow in knowledge? Will Adam gain wisdom through obedience to the Lord by repudiating the forbidden fruit and laying hold of the tree of life? Or will Adam seek to gain knowledge through forbidden means, through disobedience, by acting independent of the Lord's command and laying hold of the forbidden fruit? As we know the story, Adam chose poorly. He sought wisdom through forbidden means. It brought a curse on the whole of creation. And yet, Solomon seems to have the story of the garden in his life as he now speaks of wisdom as it continues to be offered to the whole host of the human race. How blessed is the Adam, the man who finds wisdom, the man who lays hold of the tree of life. Here, Solomon envisages a life that is lived in proper fear of the Lord. Three times Solomon iterates here in this passage the blessings of the one who finds, who gets, and who lays hold of wisdom. You see those repeated uh, synonymous verbs of getting, obtaining, laying hold of. You see it twice in verse 13 and once in verse 18. The, the whole concept is here's the one who, above all things, grasps that tree of life above and beyond what the first Adam had failed to do. Here we find a wisdom that orders our lives aright. In the fourth century, uh, there was a pastor and bishop. Many of y'all know him by the name of Augustine. Uh, In fact, there's a number of y'all who have been uh, doing a book study on Augustine's confessions over the past few months. But he wrote this little book called De Doctrina Christiana. The teaching of Christianity was intended to be a manual given to train preachers. And in the first book, Augustine begins by distinguishing between what he called use and enjoyment. His kind of main thesis in the opening uh, pages of this book is this, that man's chief end, his ultimate goal, his telos, is that of blessedness, ultimate happiness. Question is, how is that obtained? How is that gotten? Well, 
his chief blessedness, of course, is found in communion with God. That is his ultimate enjoyment. That ultimate love, that ultimate enjoyment, so orders all of those other lesser loves in Augustine's heart and in the heart of all believers that everything else is simply relegated to what he calls that of use. Right? You use things as a means to a greater end. Enjoyment is enjoying the object itself. Do y'all, do y'all get what, what I'm trying to say here? There are certain objects that are used for a greater purpose, uh, and then there are some things that they are the chief end itself. Right? We, we use food so that we can live and work. Right? It's, it has a, a, an end beyond itself, but there are some things that that thing is the end itself. And what is man's chief end? As we all know, it so orders even our catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The enjoyment of God so orders everything in our hearts that everything else is relegated to that that area, that, that level of use. We're simply using those lesser things to greater ends. We enjoy God for his own sake, but we use other things as means to obtain ultimate joy. Well, that's what Solomon is speaking of here. Consider what so many think will give them ultimate pleasure. They think that long life or riches or honor are the chief ends of their own existence. And they use wisdom as a means to obtain that end. We use medical advancements to overcome or to at least delay death. We use uh, cutthroat business practices to obtain greater wealth. We use other people as stepping stones to climb up the corporate ladder. The very things that we do exposes what it is that we enjoy most. The very things that we are pursuing And for fallen humanity, what we see, according to Scripture, is we have inverted the proper order. We find riches to be more important. We find wisdom as the means to obtain riches. And yet, if you notice here, Solomon says it's the exact opposite. Notice what Solomon says here. Wisdom's profits are greater than silver. Wisdom's revenue streams, they're greater than gold. Wisdom's value, it's greater than the rarest of gems. The question is, which is more important? Is it riches or is it wisdom? So many around us today, perhaps we ourselves, if pushed to the brink, would say, well, I think riches are more important. I use cunning. I use uh, shrewd business tactics because I think that is a means to obtain riches. And and Solomon says, no, it's the other way around. You pursue wisdom above all things, and well, guess what? Riches will get thrown in. Wisdom is greater. It's not even close. Verse 15, wisdom is incomparably greater. There is nothing that you can desire that supersedes wisdom itself. This is what you're to set your mind on. You're not to set your heart on simply getting wisdom as a means to a greater end. Think of everybody, so many people who go to college. Why do you go to college? Well, so I can get you know, enough know-how so I can make it in you know, the corporate world or the medical field or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with pursuing those particular things. But here we see that wisdom is an end in itself because it is equated with the knowledge of God. 
True wisdom, divine wisdom, relativizes earthly goods. Solomon is telling us that there are things here that money cannot buy. Earthly riches can be a great good, but if it is ever seen as an end in itself, it becomes a great evil. Remember, Scripture does not condemn riches, does not condemn money, it condemns the love of money. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Solomon is calling us to reorder our priorities. Which do you find to be more important? And Solomon is saying wisdom is more important than riches. Paul says that this is the great folly of the whole human race. We have inverted that order as man has made the created things of this earth their chief end and enjoyment. As man pursues money, wealth, health, happiness, their own personal pleasure above all things, rather than using these things as a means to a far greater end, the enjoyment of God himself, God who is himself divine wisdom. We'll see that when we get to chapter 8 of Proverbs. Wisdom is better than wealth. It is not the other way around. Wisdom relativizes earthly goods then, but it does not devalue earthly goods. We see that here in verses 16 to 18. Wisdom, you see in verses 13 to 15, they surpass wealth. Why? Because in verses 16 to 18, wisdom is equated with life. And not just regular life, everlasting life. He speaks of the tree of life in verse 18, which is to set your sights and your minds to consider what it is, what kind of life in which Solomon is actually speaking. Verse 18, wisdom is a tree of life to all who grasp her. Earthly goods have their place in life, but here we see that such goods are the fruit of wisdom. They are gifts of wisdom. You see that in verse 16, long life are in her right hand, riches and honor are in her left. In the ancient world, something that was to be found in your right hand was considered to be of greater value than the thing that you held in your left hand. In other words, Solomon here is teasing something of a hierarchy of goods, we might say. Riches and honor are good, that thing that comes from wisdom's left hand. Long life is better, which comes from wisdom's right hand. And yet all of these are simply gifts that come from wisdom itself. Long life, riches, honor, all these are gifts that are not earned or merited. They are things that are freely given from the gracious hand of wisdom. Sinful cunning uses wisdom to seize these goods, but divine wisdom recognizes them as gracious gifts given to those who seek wisdom above all things. You think of what Jesus says. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets at the same thing. He says, look, there are so many around you who are always thinking, what should we eat? What should we drink? What kind of clothes should we buy? What can I do? What are all these goods that I can obtain? And they're not bad things. Jesus does not say they're bad. Everybody's got to eat, right? But what does Jesus say? Seek first, first of greater importance, of ultimate importance, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then what else is going to happen? Everything else will be added to you. 
It's the very language Jesus uses here, and we see echoes of it in the Proverbs. We seek first the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom, Christ, who is himself the treasure trove of wisdom, as Paul says to the church of Colossae. The wicked devote their lives digging in the dirt for shiny trinkets and idolizing lesser glories. But Christ, who is greater than Solomon, comes to give something far better. He comes to give life everlasting. Divine wisdom is the greater object. Wisdom from on high. Life, wealth, and honor, these are but byproducts. Wisdom gives these things as good things to be used. But wisdom, and what is wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. It's communion with God. The friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him, Psalm 25 tells us. And that is to be treasured above all things. That is the chief thing to be enjoyed. It is not... Friendship with God is not a means to a greater end. I think that's where so many kind of health and wealth preachers get it wrong. They use God as the means to obtain riches, glory, and honor. And yet scripture says, no, God is the chief end himself. He is our great delight, the fountain of every blessing, the fountain of life. He is our chief happiness. All of our wellsprings are found in you. You read the Psalter and of the joy that is found in knowing the Lord. Jesus himself says this as he prays uh, his great high priestly prayer in John 17. This is eternal life. How does he finish the sentence? It is not found in the prolonging of days. It is not found in having a bigger home or a larger bank account. Rather, he says, this is eternal life that they know you, the true and living God, and your Son whom you have sent. There is a quality of life that is far more abundant that this world is not able to give, that is found in the knowledge of Christ. The destination is joy with paths of pleasantness and peace. For the wise man, this earthly life is no dour pilgrimage. Trials and sorrows do come, as we've considered the book of 2 Corinthians over the past year. We recognize this, that the the Christian life is cruciformed. It takes a cross-shaped pattern. And yet at the same time, Paul speaks of our sufferings in this life as but light momentary afflictions that prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Charles Bridges writes this, the ways may be dark and lonely, yet how does the sunshine of reconciliation beam upon their entrance? Knowing that we have been reconciled to God through a mediator, Him who is the source of divine wisdom, he who is divine wisdom itself, has given himself that we might enjoy communion with the living God and walk in the fear of the Lord all of our days.
The first Adam did not lay hold of the tree of life, and he was exiled from paradise. The path to life was cut off and obstructed by a cherubim with a flaming sword. The New Testament tells us that the last Adam has come, and he came to undergo a baptism of fire. That in our place he bore judgment's fiery blade, that the path to life might be opened up once again. One wiser than Solomon has come, wisdom incarnate. This is why the Bible ends, Revelation chapter 22, with the heavenly garden, the paradise city descending from on high, and what is seated in the midst of that temple garden is the tree of life. Solomon's saying the very things that the prophets will say, lay hold of wisdom. It is a tree of life. Lay hold of Christ. He is the wisdom from on high. Christ who for us became wisdom from God and righteousness and our redemption and knowledge. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Such is the type of life that Solomon speaks of in this passage. So that when he speaks of the tree of life, he attests to that abundant life that the first Adam had lost. But now that the last Adam has come, he has opened up a way for us to have life restored and secured through faith in his name. Do not confuse the means for the ends. I think that's what what Solomon is trying to get at in this passage. Wisdom is better than riches. Consider the implications because wisdom is equated with everlasting life. Seek first the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness. And all these other things, they'll be added to you according to the Lord's own good pleasure. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the wisdom that is found in Christ. We ask that we would seek Christ above all things, that we would not use our Savior to pursue other things to so exchange the creator for the creature, the truth of God for a lie, but that we would see these gifts that you have given us as good things that come from your gracious hand. Uh, Destroy the idols in our lives that we might worship you and enjoy an abundant life of communion with the living God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.